those of us in the autistic community vastly prefer acceptance month over awareness month. And here's why. First of all, most people by now are aware that autism is a thing that exists. Mm -hmm. They might have some inaccurate ideas about what autism really is, but they know it exists. Yeah, for sure. So, So we pretty much have achieved the goal of autism awareness. But the other major problem with autism awareness is that it very often has a stigmatizing tinge to it. That autism is a negative thing that people are suffering from. And just like with any other disability, autistic people don't suffer from our autism. We suffer from people having negative attitudes toward it and towards our autistic traits not being accommodated. And that's really why we need to move towards acceptance. People knowing what the true nature of autism really is, knowing that it's not a disease or a disorder, that it's another way of being and that autistic people deserve to have our needs accommodated and to be viewed as people and full members of our society. Yeah, I mean, that's all people with disabilities want, regardless of what the disability is. Now, how far have we moved the needle in terms of awareness toward acceptance, in your opinion? So we have come very far. More and more people are choosing to abandon campaigns like Light It Up Blue, which is widely regarded as stigmatizing by the autistic community, and more towards campaigns like Tone It Down Top or Red Instead, which aim to shift the focus on more acceptance-related topics. But even though we've made immense progress, we're not entirely there yet. There are a lot of autism or developmental disability organizations who try to claim that they're about acceptance on their websites or their promotional materials, but their specific actions and policies don't actually align with acceptance. And they just keep doing what they were doing, simply changing their language, but not what's actually behind it. So what truly needs to change is we need to look beyond just changing the word awareness to acceptance and actually make sure that people are walking the walk and not just talking the talk when it comes to acceptance. Exactly. So help this blind guy out. Why is a campaign such as Light It Up Blue viewed as stigmatized? Well, there are a lot of reasons. One very surface level reason is because the color blue was selected as the autism color because of a misconception that autism is predominantly a boy's or a man's disability. Oh. And I'm living proof that that's not true. (laughs) The reason why autism seems so much more prevalent in men and boys is because women and girls are underdiagnosed. 
because a lot of the diagnostic tools and expectations center around men and boys. I can't help but wonder if that's a disability thing across the board. Oh, it very well could be. Other reasons why Light It Up Blue can be stigmatizing is because a lot of the language around Light It Up Blue centers around suffering, especially perceived suffering by parents or caregivers. And finally, I'd like to say that taking a big building and putting blue lights on it or lighting up your house blue doesn't really do any tangible good for autistic people. All it really is is a performative show. Ah, I I see where you're going with this here. Melanie Hecker joining us as we're talking about autism awareness and the advocacy that we all need to do to make this happen. So one of the things that, of course, we all know it's very prevalent and perpetrated in the media is Autism Speaks, which may have been relevant at one point, but their their views, at least from what I know, are so skewed in ableist rhetoric that it is just frankly sickening to me so educate us on why autism speaks is not this wonderful organization that they portray themselves to be well first of all if you look at how autism speaks actually spends their donations very little of it actually goes to actual services for autistic people, only about 4%. Oh my gosh. That I didn't know. Wow. Most of the, most of the donation money that they receive goes towards either very stigmatizing awareness campaigns or towards research that is geared toward identifying causes and prevention of autism instead of helping autistic people that are right here right now. And while I'm talking about those awareness campaigns, Autism Speaks has a habit of taking video recordings of autistic children having meltdowns and putting them on the internet or in a video without the consent of the child. Oh my gosh. And And they, they don't even have the parental consent too, even if it's under 18? They do usually have consent from the parents for this, but even children have a right to privacy. Oh, no question about it. And those children will grow up to be adults who are going to be looking for jobs or housing or applying to colleges. Right. And all because they had a meltdown, which can be a common occurrence, you know, to some degree, depending on because autism is a spectrum disability, as as we all know. So depending on where you fall, that could be a, a relatively uh, common occurrence. It isn't anything that someone should be penalized for. No. And posting videos of meltdowns, which at, without explaining the context in which the meltdown happened just leads to people getting more stigmatized ideas about autism 
and more inaccurate ideas about autism. Yeah, I, Melanie, I'm just really struggling with why would you even post a video of someone at their worst, even when you're showing context? Because you could try and explain all the context you want, but it's very easy to look past that context. Yeah, it is undeniably wrong what they are doing, yeah. even even though they do have the consent of the parent when they do it. For sure. And you have been, I know you were telling me that you're not involved a lot with the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network now, but you used to be doing a lot of stuff with them, right? Yes. So before it folded, I was the chapter leader for the New York State chapter. And I also attended ACI, Autism Campus Inclusion. Gotcha. So when you were doing that stuff, take us through some of the, the, the work you were trying to accomplish there. So in terms of the chapter, we did focus a lot of effort on addressing some of the more stigmatizing language that has been in the media. Because the more stigmatizing language and images there are out there, the more people are going to get the wrong idea about what autism really is. Mm -hmm. And as for my time at ACI, Autism Campus Inclusion, it's a week-long advocacy camp, sort of, for autistic college students. And the knowledge that I gained from ACI, I first applied to the Not A Bit of Difference Club at Hudson Valley Community College. Mm -hmm. And then Delta Alpha Pi Disability Honor Society at the University at Albany. While at Hudson Valley Community College, I went to the Not A Bit of Difference Club, which was at the time more of a social club than an advocacy club and taught my fellow classmates a lot of the grassroots advocacy tools that I was taught at ACI so that we could improve some of the less disability-friendly practices at our school, such as improving the way that ice was cleaned up around campus, which had been causing a lot of problems for the students with disabilities on campus. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, ice is one of the worst things that we can deal with. (laughs) And at the University at Albany, so Delta Alpha Pi Disability Honor Society is the only national honor society recognizing the achievements of students with disabilities. Wow. And we undertook a variety of projects from developing disability etiquette trainings for both students and faculty to working on improvements to our school's disability resource center because Delta Alpha Pi members sort of serve as ambassadors to their school's disability resource center, which by law, every college and university is required to have. Yep. Uh, Talk about, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. In particular, we, our chapter also worked on a bill that students with disabilities in New York State have repeatedly tried to introduce 
and successfully fight for, well, actually, yeah, actually we did introduce it. Okay, that students with disabilities have repeatedly tried to fight for that will bring about a large budget increase to college and university disability centers across all four sectors, private, public, proprietary, CUNY, SUNY, all of them. Mm-hmm. Wow. I mean, it, look, there's so much advocacy and policy-related stuff. It's it's easy to forget what has and hasn't been introduced. And it's, I mean, it just speaks to, you know, why I'm doing this Blaze and Access show and why... You know, I have people with disabilities on who are doing their part, you know, along with me as we all work together to try and make the world a more inclusive, equal place for us to live. Yes, and we have had three rallies in support of this bill that has been introduced to both the Assembly and Senate because these centers have not received a budget increase almost since they were inceptive, incepted. And how, and how long this, ago was that, do you know? So the last time that CUNY received a budget increase for these centers was about 13 years ago. Jeez. SUNY never received an increase. Wow. And neither did independent or proprietary colleges. And this has led to these centers being understaffed, working on outdated technology, and even having to turn students away. Ugh. Ugh. And, and even though, I mean, do you know, and I'm guessing, did the same sort of trend continue with the most recent state budget? I mean, there was $18 billion more introduced in this budget than there was last year's budget you're looking at 212 billion this year and there was 900 or i'm sorry 194 billion uh, last year i'm still unsure about that but what we have always asked for is 15 million across all four sectors which is really a drop in the bucket and there is no reason why this needs to be turned down no absolutely not i mean so if i'm understanding this right you're you're saying 15 million across all four sectors. So are you saying that, uh, you know, each, each sector would get a, if you were to divide it up equally into four, three and three quarters million, or are you saying 15 million per sector? I'm saying 15 million to cover all four. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I mean, obviously you can't divide it up equally into into four parts just because of the size and scope of each of the systems and whatnot, but. Right. Right. So, so SUNY will receive about 6 million. Mm Hmm. So SUNY 6 million and then, and then CUNY, they get their share and then, and then the others, they tend to get less. Right. Right. So I know there were some other advocacy topic she wanted to cover, Melanie. So uh, feel free to take us through those here in the 10-ish or so minutes we've got left here. Yes. So one very important topic that I need to cover is the exact nature of what autism and developmental and intellectual disability services really are. 
because when people donate to a developmental or intellectual disability not-for-profit, they don't often realize what their donation is going to. And Mm. while it very often does not go to complete waste, like Autism Speaks, even money going to programs can cause harm to explain an ongoing phenomenon that I like to call the jailer model and the coach model. I came up with these terms myself and (laughs) I I use the jailer model to describe services where the entire point of the service and the entire mindset of the service provider is to quote unquote, correct misbehavior. Mm. And the staff person views their primary or even only role as correcting misbehavior and keeping their consumers in line. And it should be obvious why that's bad and unacceptable, but I'll explain it anyway. First of all, viewing yourself as a jailer and viewing your primary role as correcting or addressing misbehavior does not take into account the reasons why the person might be exhibiting that behavior. Right. It also is dehumanizing, does not take the person's actual needs into account, only the needs of their families or caregivers. And it discourages self-advocacy because when a service provider has this jailer mindset, self-advocacy is viewed as misbehavior and a lot of behavior that would just be viewed as frustration or sadness in a neurotypical person is viewed as misbehavior. Right. Right. So yes. Yeah. So no, you go ahead. You're the expert on this. I'm not. (laughs) So in order to move on from this type of thinking and move to something more productive and healthy, I've developed a concept called the coach model. And the coach model is instead of thinking of yourself as somebody whose primary role is to correct misbehavior and keep the person in line and subjugated, the service provider's role is to be a coach Mm. and to help the person with disabilities with what they need on their terms and to take the underlying reasons for behavior into account. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's really, it's really just, this can't happen soon enough. I mean, and and you've talked a lot about, you know, behavioral education, not just, you know, in these past couple of minutes, but in the many, 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 you know, (laughs) conversations and things that we've been a part of. And it's so critical. Yes. And while we're on the subject of behavior, I need to bring up applied behavioral analysis or ABA. It's the most widely used quote unquote therapy for autistic people, but all it is is harmful because it's all about just correcting behavior and not taking the reasons for behavior into account. It's also based on the same ideas and methodology as gay conversion therapy mm. and was developed by the same person. 
Oh, jeez. And there are some autistic behaviors that are not harmful at all. Things like flapping or hip swaying. These are called stimming. These are repetitive calming behaviors that I do myself that do not harm anyone and should not be viewed as misbehavior, should not be attempt of correcting. If you know me, I'm swaying on my hips all the time, especially in more stressful situations. That's stimming. And when I or any other autistic person do it, it's not hurting anyone. Right. I mean, I, I'm now thinking about blindness and some of the, the certain stimming that, that goes along with that, you know, the, the head being down, the, you know, rubbing of the eyes, the not necessarily looking in the direction of the voice as I'm intentionally trying to do this by shaping my head turning from where it is in relation to the microphone and, you know, looking straight at something, you know, all these, all these types of things that are, you know, stimming type behaviors that, you know, we're constantly told you need to get rid of this. You need to not do this and all this other stuff. Yet it's all so connected. Yes. And I once had a professor who would interrupt class to yell at me for moving around in my seat. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I even am thinking back. I don't think I've ever told you this story, uh, Melanie. I had a, I, I was a counselor at a sports camp for the blind, and I had an athlete who was both blind or who is both blind and autistic. And one of the things that, he, that, that, that they would do is uh, they would dip their head down and to the left. And I was told, now this was 19, 20-year-old Blaze who admittedly, even though, yes, I've been a disabled person my whole life, I didn't really know a lot in terms of, you know, the, the necessary education and the proactive, uh, you know, stuff that we're, that we've been talking about. And one of the things that I would do to kind of correct him, because I I needed to know that he was paying attention to instructions that were being given to him, and I would take my my hand and tap the inside of his shoulder, you know, just to kind of, you know, nudge him back on track. And, you know, hearing you talk about this stuff, I now feel like, oh, my gosh, I wish I wish there was a way I could do this over. Yeah, I don't know what that would be. Well, I mean, we all learn and everybody makes mistakes when interacting with any kind of disabled person for the first time. But I will say that an autistic person can pay attention to something without looking at it and very often do. Mm -hmm. Eye contact can be very hard for autistic people and looking at more than one thing at a looking at only one thing at a time can as well. So look at me when I'm talking to you, which is something that, that autistic people are very often told. Yeah. So are blind people. I mean, it's amazing. The similarities here that we're getting into. (laughs) 
Oh, yes. I've always noticed that autistic people can have a lot of similarities with blind people and deaf people as well, because autism very often manifests in difficulties with visual or auditory processing, which can include visual and auditory processing delays, which in my case, impair my ability to drive or take notes in class. Yep. So I use public transportation and have note takers during my classes. And it, it's a common misconception that autism means not understanding social rules or social cues. What autism really is, is not being able to interpret those social rules or cues due to our differences in visual and auditory processing. Such as, it's not that autistic people such as myself don't understand that we're not allowed to interrupt people. It's that our auditory processing is delayed. So when our processing speed is not at the same speed as a person that we're having a conversation with, we inevitably wind up interrupting them. Makes all the sense in the world to me. You somehow managed to avoid using filler words that many of us, myself included, use all the time. I really wonder now, because of the audio processing delay, I'm guessing that it's been a really intentional thing that you've done in terms of kind of trying to offset that to a degree in terms of not using filler words. Because my auditory processing is slower than most people's, I have less of a need for filler words. And I'm also able to go into more of a deep thought state than most people are able to. And in that deep thought state, I can simply compose my words rather than having to use a filler like um or like. I always learn something from you. And speaking of learning things, a few seconds left here. What are a couple of the best resources that people can utilize to better educate themselves on autism? Well, you've also, you've already mentioned Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. There's also Autism Women's Network. And so I currently work as a research and training associate for Center for START Services. They're out of the University of New Hampshire and START is a mental health service delivery model for people who have both a mental health challenge and a developmental or intellectual disability. And we have a lot of resources on autism and other intellectual and developmental disabilities on our site, some of which that I've written myself. So I encourage people to check it out. Hi, Melanie. Well, great to chat with you. And I always learn so much when we do. Uh, Melanie Hecker, thank you very much for being so generous with your time and I'd love to have you back on the show again here at some point to further the conversation because it's one that needs to be had. I would love to.